And now, to the manager's corner with Earl Weaver. Hi, everybody. This is Earl Weaver with Manager's Corner. Today, I have Tom Moore, Oreo broadcaster, back on the show. And I understand Tom's been getting some mail uh, with questions that supposedly I can answer. Now, what the fuck are some of these goddamn questions, Tom? Well, first of all, Earl, George Moore from Baltimore is asking how much we feel the loss of uh, Don Stanhouse. Well, Don Stanhouse was an asshole. He had us in trouble, had the fucking bases loaded. God damn it, almost every fucking time he went out there, he liked to ruin my health smoking cigarettes, and thank God we got Timmy Stoddard coming in out of the bullpen right now, sticking a bat up their asses. And that's what it takes. Well, Bill Whitehouse, Earl, that, that certainly is an answer. From uh, Frederick Merrill wants to know why you and the Orioles don't go out and get some more team speed. Team speed, for Christ's sake. You get fucking goddamn little fleas on the fucking bases, getting picked off, trying to steal, getting thrown out, taking runs away from you. You get them big cocksuckers that can hit the fucking ball out of the ballpark and you can't make any goddamn mistakes. Uh, well, well, certainly this show is going to get out in history, Earl. Terry Elliott of Washington, D.C. wants to know why you don't use Terry Crowley as a designated hitter all the time. Well, Terry, Terry Crowley's lucky he's in fucking baseball, for Christ's sake. He was released by the Cincinnati Reds. He was released by the fucking goddamn Atlanta Braves. We saw that Terry Crowley could sit on his fucking ass for eight innings and enjoy watching a baseball game just like any other fan and has the ability to get up there and break one open in the fucking night. So if this cocksucker is mind his own business and let me manage the fucking team, we'd be a lot better off. Well, certainly you've made your opinions known on the fans' questions about baseball, Earl, but let's get to something else. Alice Sweet from Norfolk wants to know the best time to put in a tomato plant. Alice Sweet ought to be worried about where the fuck her next lay is coming from rather than where her next goddamn tomato plant is coming from. She'd get her ass out of the fucking bars at night and go hustling around the goddamn street. She might get a prick stuck in her once in a while. I don't understand where these questions are coming from, Tom. That's about it from Manager's Corner. Go fuck yourself and the fuck with your show coming up next on the Baltimore Oriole Baseball Fucking Network. Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the incomparable Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Half man, half podcast machine. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki. Back in the Captain Kirk's chair, seeing down photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. I want to thank my always expanding Seamhead Army back into the fold here for another week, as well as the pristine virgin who has stumbled onto this show, maybe by chance, maybe by word of mouth, whatever your deal is, welcome in, make yourselves at home, as we walk down this path of celebrating the great game of baseball through our indelible stories and moments. And look, we're all here for a particular reason and path. You don't even need to know the curriculum to know you are part of the math. That's why I Expose my soul to the globe, the world. I'm trying to leave something behind for these boys and girls. I can't stop. It's why I'm hot. Dedication, determination, motivation. I'm speaking to you of my many baseball inspirations. If I won the highest clip on the highest rip and you slipped on your side and you clenched your grip into my wrist, I would never, ever let you down. 
And, my, and when my light dims, remember, I get my hymns from him. That's why my words are confirmed by God. And yes, I do dream in colors and in pots. I'm a blessed one. One of a kind. Ace of a king full house. Because whenever I open my heart, my soul, or my mouth, a touch of baseball rains out. And with the Backwards K Pod baseball prayer on the record this week, let's get down to business. Backwards Bay Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your shows. Or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, to hear this or any of the other shows and my expanding vaults of archives. I come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. I promise to always keep the content free and listenable. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing. I'm not going to throw like three million commercials into the show ever. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not into that when I listen to my pods. And I'm damn sure never going to walk up to my audience with a hat in my hand uh, in this horseshit economy and ask you for your nickels and dimes. I'm just going to roll up my sleeves. And when it's my turn at bat, I'm going to hit every Tuesday. People ask me all the time, what can I do to help you? And the answer is simple. You know, please like, share, download, subscribe, and, and look, if you're on Apple or Spotify or any of these platforms that offer you a chance to comment on the show or my performance, by all means, leave me a rate and a review as you see fit, I skirt, all these things keep the show viable and enables me to continue to do the thing that I love to do more than anything in this world, and that's talk baseball to the five people like yourself. I do what I do when I do it. I do it better than anybody else. Facts. Now, I got a message from former Major League Baseball player Shay Hillenbrand this week. And folks, I got to tell you, I was absolutely floored when I got it. I wanted to share it with the audience because I'm very proud of it. And here's how it reads. It says, Loving your content, Jake. I just sent you a friend request. It would be awesome to connect. I look forward to inspiring and impacting the world together. Step to the plate. It's game time. Shay. And folks, look, first of all, I've always been a Shay Hillenbrand fan myself. Uh, any of you Seamheads within 10, 15 years of my age range, you probably remember him. He played most notably with the Red Sox, Toronto, Arizona. And the truth be told, anytime I get on a microphone in public, there's a lot of inner angst inside of me. This goes all the way back to when I did school announcements with the Pledge of Allegiance over my middle school PA. And when I performed at the world-famous Apollo back in 1994. Then I went into Baltimore Sports Talk Radio in the late 90s, early 2000s. So all the way, you know, up to these podcast endeavors I've done the last five years. So every single time I've picked up a mic in my life, internally, I'm conflicted. I can feel like the natural dopamine inside of my body enter my cerebellum. It's a really like a natural high. But at the same time, I'm a very insecure person, believe it or not. I wrestle internally. Am I good enough? Can I compete with all this talent? And it never fails. Before I go on the air, I stare at the ceiling and I ask myself, what the hell am I doing? Why do I do this to myself? Now, I'm telling you, every single time I did it before I got on the air tonight, and next thing you know, the red light goes on, and I just go, and I find my comfort zone, and I don't look back. So when a guy like Shea Hillebrand, a highly respected former MLB player, tells me he appreciates my work, it makes it all worth it, quite honestly. And I'm going to pull the curtain back here a little bit and let you know that behind the scenes, Shay and I are having some Zoom meetings together this week. And I think I can safely say there will be a bonus pod, Hill and Brand interview coming very soon here at Backwards K Pod where we collect ballplayers and their stories. And he has one hell of a story. He's a very inspira- inspirational person that I admire. I really, really feel like we are two peas in a pod with that, you know, win-the-day lifestyle. So, thank you, Shay. I'm honored to have you as a member of my growing Seamhead Army going forward. And I, too, look forward to inspiring and impacting the world with you. So, exciting times here at Backwards K-Pod. If you'd like to message the show, you can email me at backwardskpod at gmail.com. 
You can find us on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast or you can find me on Facebook and YouTube under the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network banner. I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. Get some. And with that being said, I can see the catch is ready to come down. I'm calling all aboard. And let's get this train back on track, rolling again. As this week, I will be doing a case study on the Earl of Baltimore, Mr. Earl Weaver. And folks, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been waiting for this time for the last couple months. I said this last week. Earl Weaver was probably the most influential person in my formative years as a kid. I would say even more so than my own parents. From the very first day that I can remember Earl, I bought into what he was selling. Yes, he was a great manager, a winner, but that wasn't what first attracted me to Earl. It was this no-nonsense, everyone is conspiring against me, and I'm still going to win attitude. It was very apparent to me as a kid that this guy is a leader. And when introducing Earl to the baseball universe back in 1968, GM Harry Dalton said, quote, In short, I believe Earl is a winner. And Harry was right on both accounts. Weaver was five foot seven, so he was short, and he was a winner. Now, quick side note, this Harry Dalton guy here, he's the very same GM that we talked about in the Harvey's Wallbanger show last week. The very same GM who fired Brew Crew manager Buck Rogers after starting the season twenty three and twenty four, who fired him and in favor of batting coach Harvey Keene. Who would eventually lead the 1982 Brewers to the World Series against St. Louis Cardinals? So, history says that Harry Dalton clearly, clearly has an eye for managers. And for the next 14 and a half seasons, the Orioles won more games than any other team in baseball, amassing six division titles, four American League pennants, and a 1970 World Series championship. Weaver, who was a career minor league player, he became the revered Earl of Baltimore while fighting with the umpires, his own players, as well as the English language. So I share all of those qualities with Earl, quite honestly. Weaver's road to Cooperstown had started on a laundry truck as his father owned a dry cleaning shop and the family took care of the St. Louis Browns and the Cardinals uniforms. Earl began running the clubhouses in Sportsman Park as a six-year-old boy, and he was immediately bitten by the baseball bug. He was born in St. Louis, August 14, 1930. Weaver showed his shrewdness when he signed his first Pro Bowl contract at the ripe age of 17 years old. Both hometown teams, the Browns and the Cardinals, had shown interest in the diminutive second baseman. The Browns offered him a $2,000 bonus that would kick in if he made a minor league roster, whereas the Cards offered him about $500 less and $1,500, but with no strings attached. And with that, Earl became a Cards farmhand. Now, the second baseman, he did make it to uh, Cardinal Spring Training Camp once, but he never really came close to a big league at bat. He, he had a weak arm, no pop, and a belligerent, nasty streak inside of him that, quite honestly, pissed off many of the umpires and opponents in the league. And Earl once said the hardest thing he ever had to admit to himself that was that, you know, he wasn't a very good ball player. All he ever wanted to do was play in the majors, and it literally broke his heart to come to this realization. On his 26th birthday, the Cards let him go to a Knoxville Independent Class A club where he reluctantly took over as the interim manager of the last place Smokies at the midseason point in 1956. And actually, that fall, Earl was prepared to leave baseball for good. And he had married Jane Johnston when he was 18 years old. And at the age of 26, they had already had two children. A third one would come later. And Earl had security in his off-season job at uh, Liberty Loan Company in St. Louis. And they were, quite honestly, they were promising him a better future. You know, a guaranteed future. Uh, you know, his own offense to manage and a title. But, 
a then assistant in the Orioles farm system, Harry Dalton. He met Weaver in his travels through Knoxville, and immediately he was highly impressed by Earl. And Dalton would pass word up the Orioles chain about Earl, and he was offered a chance to manage a Class D team in Fitzgerald, Georgia. Yeah, Fitzgerald, Georgia, it's like this one restaurant, no museum type of town. It's at the very bottom level of professional baseball. Weaver took the job and a pay cut, and off he went. This better work. Under manager and GM, the tall Texan, Paul Richards, the owners were building one of the major strongest farm systems. Farm director Jim McLaughlin was scouting and signing talent all over the country. Richards had indoctrinated the minor league managers and instructors to teach the game of uh, the game's fundamentals the same way throughout the organization. So, when a guy leaves single A to go to double A, there's no different system. It's done the same way in double A as it is in single A or triple A or even at the major league baseball level with the Orioles. It's done the Orioles way. And if you remember in the Cal Ricker Jr. show here at Backwards K-Pod, I told you that Earl, Cal, uh, Senior, Paul Richards, Dalton, they worked in concert with each other to make sure each level was being taught the Orioles way. And if you haven't heard that Death Taxes Cal Ricker Jr. show here at Backwards K-Pod, you should definitely check that out in the archives. Now, that's on all platforms or at DiamondSnakeJake.Podbean.com. Com. Weaver would always say that Richards and George Kissel, a longtime manager of the card system, they were the two greatest teachers he ever had. And I think that when we speak of the Orioles and all the success they had from the mid-60s to the early 80s, Paul Richards' name isn't mentioned enough. He, he was a man of vision who knew talent and he knew how to maximize each player's production. And honestly, that's a, that's a lesson that Earl took to heart if you look at his career. After four seasons, managing the lower levels, levels, Earl was put in charge of the minor league camp in Thomasville, Georgia in 1961. But Earl's legendary temple, temper, it almost sabotaged his career before it even started. There were more than a couple times the league president would call Harry Dalton and implore him to muzzle his wild dog before someone would have to put him down. Harry... He adored Earl. He warned him that his frequent, ejection, frequent ejections were getting in the way of teaching his farmhands, his prospects. And Earl loved Harry too, but he called horseshit. As far as Earl was concerned, I win, I must know what the hell I'm doing. And that's how he carried it. And Earl had a point. Three pennants, five second place finishes in 11 years. Starting in 1962, he spent four seasons in Elmira, New York, in the AA Eastern League. In 1963, he and his first wife, Jane, they divorced. And in 1964, he married Mariana Osgood, a divorcee with a young daughter. He bought a house in Elmira, and from all accounts on my research, he seemed content to just make his life in Elmira. However, comma. The Orioles would promote Weaver to AAA affiliate Rochester in 1966. That's the same year the Orioles were en route to sweeping Sandy Koufax and the Los Angeles Dodgers in the World Series. Weaver himself, he led the Rochester Red Wings to a league pennant in, uh, in 66. So, the Orioles, they have this winning culture that runs throughout the whole organization at this time. In 1967... The Orioles fall to sixth place and a losing record. Even though, uh, you know, Frank Robinson and Jim Palmer suffered injuries in 67, Harry Dalton believed that Hank Bauer deserved a big share of the blame. In fact, behind the scenes, Dalton was begging for Bauer to resign after the uh, 67 season was in the books, but Hank refused to walk away from that year's worth of salary. So Dalton would instead replace most of the Orioles' coaches, and Brooks Robinson can recall that. Everyone pretty much knew Earl was taking over at some point because he was Harry's guy. When Bauer got the axe at the All-Star break, Baltimore stood slightly above 500, but light years from being in the pennant race, and Earl was offered the gig. And while Weaver's promotion was not shocking within the Orioles organization or in the Baltimore media, 
Earl would not take his dream job without twisting Dalton's tits a little bit here. He firmly rejected Dalton's first salary offer. He stood firm until he got his $28,000 that he he wanted out of of Dalton for his services. And I feel it imperative to note that $28,000 in 1968 has the purchasing power of around $240,000 in today's broken economy. So, when Earl took over the Orioles, he was approached by future Hall of Famer Frank Robinson, and Frank asked him, what can I do to help you? And Earl begged him to sign baseball. It's a chore that many baseball players detested, and when the other Orioles saw Frank signing baseballs, they began signing baseballs. And it was then, watching from a corner, watching what had transpired, Earl knew two things. Being accepted by Robbie was huge because of the power he wielded in the clubhouse. And two, he can win with these kids. Earl, always at the time, he just looked at himself as some bush leaguer. And here he was winning acceptance on a major league clubhouse. And the majority of these players were more than, you know, well, more than half of these guys. He, he managed already in the minors. Baltimore made a run at the division leader Detroit Tigers, but they couldn't catch them. The Orioles were 43 and 37 when Bauer was fired, and they went 43 and 34 under Weaver, finishing in second place. In 1969, the first year of division play, Baltimore ran away with the American League East title. Frank Robinson returned to rock star status. 23 year old Jim Palmer's arm had finally healed after two years of injuries. Young Southpaw Dave McNally won his first 17 decisions, finishing with a 20-7 record and a 3.29 ERA, as he led the AL with a .84 whip, finished with a 4.7 war and a 111 ERA+, and he would finish fifth in AL MVP voting. The Orioles would also steal a dominant, quirky left-hander named Crazy Horse, Mike Cuellar, and a, tra- and a trade with the Houston Astros that saw Baltimore send Kirk Leffery and Tom Johnson to Houston in exchange for the enigmatic and talented pitcher. The Orioles moved into first place on the ninth day of the 1969 season, and they never looked back. Their lead expanded to 22 games in mid-September. After a 109-53 and record in the regular season, Baltimore swept the Twins in the first ALCS, and the Orioles... Outfielder Dom Buford led off the 1969 World Series with a bomb as the heavily favored Orioles easily took Game 1. And it looked like it was only a matter of time before they choked out those amazing Mets. Ironically, that was the last game the Orioles would win in 1969 as the Mets would go on to win the next four games in a row and limit the O's offense to only five runs in those four games combined. With the fate of the baseball universe hanging in the balance, And with the championship slipping away, Earl was the first manager in 34 years to get ejected from a World Series game. Many sports scribes, they felt the Orioles got complacent after molesting the American League during that season. But Weaver would often chirp back, nah, they just, you know, they just pitched better than us. And folks, next year we'll be talking about the 1969 Amazing Mets team. I told you last week that it's official. I'll be coming back for another season with Podbean. And I've begun, uh, I've begun working on that schedule. And the Amazing Mets are going to be certainly on their feature. I also have some info about that 1969 World Series in the Nolan Ryan Show. So if you want to check that out at diamondstatejake.podbean.com, go right ahead. Uh, I cover that 1969 World Series pretty in-depth in that show. In 1970, the Orioles returned with a vengeance in their heart as they went 108-54. and The team spent all but nine days in first place, and again, they allowed the AL's fewest runs. Palmer, McNally, Cuellar, they all notched, notched 20 wins on the bump, and first baseman Boo Powell won the MVP award. The Orioles came from behind to win 42 games that year, and they finished the season on an 11-game winning streak, and then they swept the Twins again in the ALCS. From opening day of 1970, the Orioles to a man, they're on the same page as far as not letting 
what the Mets did to them a year ago happen again. The Orioles would match up versus the Cincinnati Redlegs, National League champions and winners of 102 games during that regular season. And the O's pounded out 10 home runs in that series. Bruce Robinson put on one of the greatest World Series performances in the history of the game. Uh, that is until you know a year later when uh, Roberto Clemente put on one of the greatest performances. But at that time, it was one of the greatest performances ever. Both with the bat and with the glove. Even Reds manager Sparky Anderson was in awe of Brooks equipping Robinson Beta. Simple as that. He also told the press that Weaver does not get enough credit for his back-to-back pennants. And that it's a travesty that he didn't win manager of the year either of those years. And again, folks, I've covered Sparky Anderson a few times in here. We've talked about this World Series in particular in the Big Red Machine show here on Backwards K-Pod. As well as, uh, we covered a lot of Sparky in the Ronald Floor show as well. And both of those shows, again, are available in the archives or wherever your pod platform of choice is. Or you can go to dynastatejake.podbean.com. And Weaver, who has... As self-deprecating as they come. He said, well, you know, maybe the writers are right. All I do is sit on my ass on the bench and say, come on, Booger, get a hold of one. Come on, Frank, let's go, Brooksley. So, before the 1971 season began, Sports Illustrated proclaimed the Orioles as the best damn team in baseball. Now, if that's not a curse, just sitting there to bite you. The O's had four 20-game winners. They had stacked up 101 victories, swept the A's in the ALCS to claim their third straight pennant. And of course, this is the World Series where, like I said a couple minutes ago, the Pirates and Roberto Clemente, you know, his star shined brightest on the biggest stage and his last hurrah on the big stage. As, you know, Clemente single-handedly destroyed the Orioles' war machine with a 414 average, 12 hits, two dongs, Top flight defensive security of the world out in right field, Craig. Another World Series. I covered extensively on the very first show here on Backwards K on the great one, Roberto Clemente. But look, Baltimore had put up a historic run despite losing two of the three World Series, only the 1929 to 1931 Philadelphia A's and the Yankees, who have done it several times. You know, they're the only ones that won three consecutive AL pennants. But the core of the team was aging. A 35-year-old Frank Robinson was traded to Cleveland. Quayle was 35 as well, and he was in decline. Brooks and Don Buford were 34. And the O's still had a strong farm. But, of course, no one can replace, you know, that Robinson production. So the Orioles fell to third place in 1972. They then rallied to win the East in 73 and 74. Weaver was finally named AL Manager of the Year in 73. The O's were fought in the dynastic AL West champion Oakland A's in both of those years in the playoffs. And in 1976, the biggest existential threat to the Orioles' tradition of fielding a winner occurred off the field, off the field, and would ultimately impact the Orioles long after Earl Weaver. And to some extent, it still does to this day. In 1976, the baseball players won their free agent freedom from the oppressive reserve clause. And, to be honest, the Orioles were not one of baseball's biggest draws. Again, that's a problem that still haunts them. You know, they're in the playoff run right now, and literally, I saw the game earlier tonight. There had to be like 8,000 people in that fucking stadium. And the owner, Jay Hallberger, he didn't have the deep pockets to compete with these free-spending Yankees and Angels. Homegrown stars such as Wayne Garland, Bobby Grinch, they moved on along with some of that lower-tier talent. Tom Baylor, who was still a year away from free agency, he was packaged up, sent to Oakland. You know, the A's, they're reading the free agent writing on the wall as well. And they sent Reggie Jackson to Baltimore for one season. Of course, we all know Reggie moves on to the Bronx in 77, where his star shines brighter than ever before. And Orioles GM Hank Peters would say he literally watched an all-star team walk out the door. During the longest spell of Earl's career between AL pennants, 1972 to 1979, Weaver's reputation actually grew as he juggled the turnover on the Orioles roster and always kept that team in the hunt and in contention 
win or lose, there are always relevant games in September being played. He won another Manager of the Year award in 77 when the Young O's placed second behind the free agent juggernaut Yankees, who would go on to win the World Series behind the exploits of Reggie Jackson. And Weaver was catnip to Charm City sports writers and radio personalities, as he was never shy about saying what he thought in his feisty, raspy voice nature. And, you know, you heard it at the beginning of the show when he's on the radio show. He just tells it the way it is. He preached pitching, defense, three-run home run. His philosophy, philosophy was simple. Pitching keeps you in the game, and three-run home runs win the game. It was a formula he developed through his experience in the American League. Believe it or not, Earl called for more sacrifice bunts than any other AL manager in his first year in 1968. But he developed a disdain for the bunt, saying, Your most precious commodity on offense is your 27 outs. Why are you giving them away? Don't play for one run unless you only need one run, because 90% of the time, if you play for one run, then that's all you're going to get. He played Moneyball and metric stats long, long before Billy Bean and the Oakland A's. He had close to a million index cards he kept on catalog. And kids, alright, let me explain this to you. Index cards are those things that, that Earl would write down all his detailed observations on every single player and what they did head-to-head versus Oriole pitchings. Pitchers. Uh, writing is the thing we used to do before computers and, and, and phones to keep information. Kind of like your version of texting, but with pencils. Shit. Okay. Pencils are the things that we... Ah, fucking go ask your parents. I digress. Where was I? So, he had all these index cards and loosely new notebooks that told him... Booger couldn't hit Mickey Lowlitz on the Tigers, so Booger sits on those days. However, his two-time Triple Frown winning shortstop, that's right, Triple Frown, you heard it. That's when you have the lowest average home run RBI in the league during the season. And Mark Belanger, the shortstop, he did that twice. He would all of a sudden turn into Tyrus Raymond Cobb whenever he faced Nolan Ryan. So the blade always moved up in the lineup to the two spot whenever they faced Nolan Ryan. He platooned Gary Renneke and John Lowenstein, and as a tandem, those two would out-hit most other teams' everyday left fielder by, like, a lot. In the 79 season, the Lowenstein and Renneke platoon clubbed 35 home runs with 97 RBIs in a straight platoon situation. And Earl had all the meticulous notes he kept after every single game near his fingertips and his clubhouse office. He was an artist like Monet, just a little more belligerent, and baseball was his canvas. He mixed and matched his lineup according to the stats he kept, and Earl liked the veteran, bu- uh, veteran bench. He, he always called that deep depth. His credo as a manager was the manager wins his most games during the offseason when he picks his team. Luckily for Earl, he had amassed goodwill and respect from the Orioles front office as they generally tailored the team to Weaver's wants and needs. GM Hank Peters, he didn't mind because he knew if Earl was asking for a player on his roster, Earl had plans and he would use that player. In fact, Peters once said, You can't give Earl 13 players and 12 dogs because Earl will play the 12 dogs. It's just better to give him what he wants. And Earl loves dudes on the bench who can hit like Terry Crowley and Jose Morales, even if it brings the team speed down. Weaver, he wasn't a player's manager. He confronted his guys when he felt like it needed to be done. Uh, He and Fiery Rick uh, catcher Rick Dempsey, they would literally scream at each other. Yeah, and on more than one occasion, they need to be separated by the boys. But he never held anything against this guys. And Dempsey re- recollects that he would say, you know, the two of them would say awful things to each other in the heat of the moment, but he never held anything against me, 
nor I to him. And he allowed me to have my temper, tantrums, and comebacks. And the next day, he would talk to me and have my name in the lineup as if it never happened. In his own way, I knew Earl loved and respected me. But Earl was right. You should not be buddy-buddy with your players. Earl ran a dictatorship, and he kept everyone happy. Not by being their friend, but by never taking anything personal, and by making sure no one else took anything he said personal. And pitchers were most, you know, the target of Weaver's verbal wrath. To which McNally once remarked, the only thing Earl knew about pitching was he could never hit it. Which only fueled the insecure Weaver taunts even more. When a fading Mike Quayar complained that Earl wasn't giving him enough chances to redeem himself, Weaver shot back that he gave Crazy Horse more chances than he gave his first wife. Jim Palmer, the eloquent, elegant ace of the staff, would literally have confrontations with the fiery skipper that would actually play out for all to see on the mound. And Palmer can remember a game versus the Red Sox, where all-world shortstop fielding sensation, Mark Belanger had two errors in the first inning, and that was compounded by Brooks Boo Powell losing a foul ball in the sun. And before you know it, the O's are down 3 to nothing in the first. Well, Palmer looks up to see Earl walking towards him from the dugout with an annoyed look on his face. And quite honestly, Palmer was in the no mood for this little man's shit right now. So Earl says to Jimmy, are, are you even trying, Jimmy? And Palmer just lost it. You fucking asking me if I'm trying, Earl? Am I trying? You wrote the fucking lineup. Are you trying? The shortstop you put in the game is two errors. Better yet, go ask the big fella over there first base if he meant to lose that fly ball in the sun. Ask him if he's trying. He'll smash you like a fucking bug. Get out of here. An even more classic confrontation played out before the 1979 World Series when Earl told Jim he was starting Game 1 versus the Pirates. Palmer looked at Earl in a confused, quizzical manner and says, I'm not starting Game 1. And Weaver incredulously says, No, Jimmy, you're starting Game 1. And Jim says, No, I'm not. Flanagan has been the best pitcher in the American League all year and he won the Cy Young. He's starting Game 1. No, Jim, I want the experience that you have on the mound game one, so it's going to be you. And it started, it started a whole shitstorm that played itself out in the News American and Baltimore Sun newspapers. History will show you that uh, Jim actually won that argument, as Flanny did wind up starting game one, and he picked up the W. Earl believed that rookie pitchers began their journey in the bully, and they earned their way into the rotation. And that early coddling it probably explains why Oriole pitchers always seemed immune to, to, to big-time arm injuries. Earl also stuck with the four-man rotation long after most managers went on a five-man. Reasoning that he didn't like the drop-off in talent from the fourth pitcher to the fifth. And it's much easier to find four talented starter arms than it is to find five. He kept his distance from his players. He never knew if he would have to bench one or cut a player or trade one. And he would often say, you can't help loving them. But you really can't afford to. Earl had the uncanny skill of reading people. And he also believed hypnotism was a a cure-all for everything from batting slumps to emotional issues. His philosophy was to keep the 13 guys on the team who didn't like him away from the other 12 who weren't sure if they liked him. Weaver reserved his best verbal tirades for the umpires. His confrontations are legendary to this day. He would stand on the top rail and ride the umps with his raspy voice for the first pitch to the last out. His 94 ejections, it ranks fourth all time among managers. To which Earl said, hey, the MLB umpire is amazing. In all my games on the MLB level, they were only wrong 94 times out of hundreds of thousands of calls. But somebody has to tell them when they're wrong. His feud with flamboyant umpire uh, Ron Luciano. I mean, it was the stuff of legend. These two men, they couldn't stand one another. And once Luciano publicly proclaimed, I don't care who was a pennant as long as it ain't Baltimore. 
So the league offices, they had to keep these two away from each other. But when the two finally did appear on the same field again, Earl and Ron confronted each other in the game, and we were wanted up protesting the game on the grounds of umpire's integrity. <laughs> He's a pisser. This would earn Earl a three-game suspension. And, folks, I have the uh, Weaver Bill Holler clap, uh, clip, Haller clip. Most of you have seen this, but the few of you that haven't, let me set this up. It's, uh, it's the first inning. The clip starts out, Eddie, is, Eddie Murray is arguing a ball call first base against uh, pitcher Mike Flanagan with the umpire Bill Haller. Again, this is the very first inning, second batter of the game, literally four minutes into the game. And all hell breaks loose. up to Flanagan after the confrontation, Flanagan sheepishly admits he balked. <laughs> but Weaver was really, ultimately, he was concerned about losing Eddie Murrow on that play more than anything else. Eddie was feisty himself, and Earl couldn't afford to lose his best hitter. Earl had a philosophy. It was very simple in regards to his players. Don't argue with the umpires. That's my job. We can afford to lose me for the game, but not you. And a lot of times, Earl was run. It was from defending his players to the extreme to deflect from the umpire's attention. With an influx of new uh, young generation of Orioles like Eddie Murray, Doug DeSensei, Mike Flanagan, Dennis Martinez, Kenny Singleton, Scott McGregor, we didn't think this club was nearly as strong as his early 70s teams, but they kept on winning. Jim Palmer gave Earl his 1,000th win as a manager on opening day. The Orioles curb stopped their way to first place on May 18th, and he stayed there despite injuries to Palmer, to Sensei, and several others. But the skilled Weaver, with his index cards, 
Yeah, he mixed and matched his way to the season, and many observers outside the charm, they called them the Who's That. Weaver won his third Manager of the Year award from the AP, as the Orioles rang up 102 wins before choking out the Halos in the 1979 ALCS. In the World Series versus the We Are Family Pirates, the same team that I did a show on a couple of months ago with my boy Mikey Franks. The Orioles took a three-game-to-one advantage before the O's bats turned into ice, and the Buckos miraculously stormed back to win the title from that 3-1 deficit. Um, in the de- de- decisive game seven, Weaver used 20 players, including six pitchers and five pinch hitters, but they still could not overcome uh, pop stars on that 79 Pirates unit. Again, that's another team we have in our collection here, the Backwards K Pod. And if you haven't heard that show, you should check it out in my archives, diamondsnakejake.poppy.com. In 1980, the Orioles again won 100 games for the fifth time in its 12 year managerial tenure. They won at least 90 in seven of the other seasons. In 1980, they finished three games back of the Yankees. In 81, they were in second place when the players went on strike. And then they dropped to a second half, fourth place finish when the players returned. Weaver felt like his influence and power within the organization was waning. Especially when the clubs traded uh, Doug DeSensei to make room for rookie sensation Cal Ripken. Weaver found that trading DeSensei was really unnecessary as he had plans for the young Ripken. Earl and his third base coach. Cowrican Senior, they had decided they were going to move the six foot four inch Cowrican Junior to shortstop. A move that would basically shatter the MLB's perception of what a shortstop was forever. It was almost entirely his early idea. At the age of 51, the same, the same age I am today, that just kind of blows me away. Earl announced that the 1982 would be his last year managing the Orioles. And it looked like, you know, the 1982 season was going to be the Earl's worst year yet when the Orioles plummeted the last place by May. But then they rallied with a 15-9 June. They began chasing the Milwaukee Brewers team I covered last week on Harvey, Harvey's Wallbangers. And Weaver was juggling, like, this aging lineup with only two rising stars in Eddie Murray. And, you know, he had 32 home runs, 110 RBIs that year. Rookie of the year, Calvin Jr., 28 dong, 93 ribs. And no pitcher on that staff had an ERA under third, uh, three. And no one under, on that staff had more than 16 wins. As we talked about last week, the Orioles were seven games back. August 28th, they won 10 games in a row, but Milwaukee still led by three games with four games left in Baltimore, and the Orioles would have to sweep to win the division. And again, as we discussed last week, the Orioles took the first three games by a combined score of 26-7 before Don Sutton and Orioles killer uh, Robin Yount took the Orioles behind the shed, put the Orioles down for good in game 162. To take the ALE's pennant. Weaver's last season was over. I was at this game. An 11 year old. I'm in tears. Not just because of the Orioles loss. Which was devastating. But also because this was the end of my childhood in many ways. All the lessons I learned from this man. Don't trust anyone. Everyone is conspiring against you. Fight until the very last out. These were important life lessons I had learned at a very influential part of my life. The crowd of 51,642 after being crushed by the Brewers, well, they're refusing to leave. Literally, no one left. Finally, Earl comes back out. He contorts his body to spell Orioles. And the love fest, it lasted for about 45 minutes. No one was leaving. We all knew once we left, this run was over. So, no one was leaving. Weaver and his wife, Mariana. uh, Mariana, they moved permanently to their winter home in Miami, where he indulged himself to a life of playing golf and betting on horses and greyhounds. Eleven times by Weaver's county was offered a job, but he insisted he was done managing. Besides, none of these teams were Baltimore, and that's the only place he promised he would ever manage again if the opportunity ever rose. And 
it would actually take one of the greatest lawyers ever to argue him out of retirement. The Orioles won the 1983 World Series under Weaver's successor, Joe Altabelli, who then fell, you know, then the Orioles fell to fifth place in the, in the East in 84, causing owner Edward Bennett Williams to call Altabelli Cemente. <laughs> My God. When the club fell into a slump early in 1985, EBW was open, openly pining for the return of Earl Weaver. And Weaver needs a job. He gave up his part-time consultant title with the team. He was dropped from the ABC TV broadcast booth. Inflation was eating up his retirement egg. So when Williams dangled 500 grand in front of Earl to return, he couldn't resist $500,000. Um, it's important to know that $500,000 in 1986, it's worth about $1.4 million today in the 2022 economy. When Weaver returned, he barely recognized the team. They still had Murray and Ripken, but the farm had dried up. And Williams had brought in free agents who didn't know or didn't even care to know the Orioles' way. Weaver was still convinced he could win. On August 5th, they were two and a half games back despite injuries to Murray and center fielder Fred Lynn. They went 14-42 the rest of the way to finish last for the first time in club history. Murray asked Williams to trade him after the year when the owner insinuated he was out of shape and never had a dirty uniform due to his lack of hustle. And the clubhouse turned sour. And on August 21st, Weaver informed Edward Bennett Williams he would not be returning. When the last play season ended, there was no curtain call. There was no big goodbye. Earl returned home to Miami. For good this time. Weaver was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1996. In 2010, Weaver took the lineup card out to home plate. Umpire Bob Davidson and Orioles Park with yours truly in attendance. And again, I cried like a baby. There, there have only been two times I've shed a tear at a baseball game. And it was both times it was because of Earl Weaver. The 1982 season finale versus the Brewers when Earl retired that first time out. And in 2010, at this game here, I was set to move to Altoona, Pennsylvania at the end of that weekend. And I knew I would never see Earl alive again in person. And all those memories and life lessons taught, they came back into my psyche watching Earl with Jimmy, Eddie, Calvin, and Frank. And they were all surrounding him in love. And to this day, I still get a lump in my throat when I think about that memory. On January 19th, 2013, at uh, 2 a.m. in the morning, my hero Earl Weaver died aboard the boat Celebrity Silhouette during an Orioles fantasy cruise for O's fans. He was 82 years old. They say he went quietly in his sleep but I'm calling bullshit nothing Earl Weaver ever did was quiet and folks I think this is where I'm going to end it now I did do an interview with former Orioles and current Yankees analyst and play by play guy Kenny Singleton back in 2020 and I asked him about his relationship with Earl and did he ever have a situation where Weaver dug into him and this is what he said
Research. So, I want to take a quick look at Earl Weaver's managerial stats. Okay. Earl Sidney Weaver managed 2,541 games and had 1,480 wins, 1,060 losses, and a tie for a winning percentage of 583. His 1,480 wins, it makes him the 28th most winningest manager in baseball history. His 583 winning percentage, however, is the 13th best in Major League Baseball history. And his 420 wins above 500, they rank 7th all time. Now, when I nerd out and I go analytical with Earl, I find that Earl's teams, they won about 20 more games than expected based on their Pythagorean record, and about 28 games more than their war projections. So, when combining the two metrics, Weaver ranks 16th overall, which, you know, that just speaks to his leadership capabilities and his ability to maximize production out of every single player. As I said, he's credited with 94 ejections. Uh, during one tirade, Earl tells the umpire he's going to go check the rule book, to which the umpire replied, here, use mine. And Earl, not missing a beat, shot back, fuck you, I don't read Braille. Ah, uh, what, 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 what? He's a pisser. In his 18-year Oriole manager career, he had five, uh, five 100-win seasons, six 90-win seasons, four AL pennants, one world championship in 1970, 1983, he's inducted into the Orioles Hall of Fame with the Blade, Mark Belanger, and the team officially retired his number four. Three-time American League Manager of the Year, and in 1996, he was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. And there you have it, folks. You can officially add Earl Weaver's story uh, to our growing collection of ballplayers and stories here at Backwards K-Pod. And there is so much stuff out there to learn more about the Earl of Baltimore. And quite, you know, I told you that Palmer and Weaver, they, they had a real love-hate thing for each other. The truth is, neither one of them probably realized how much they needed each other until their careers were, were over. And look, Jim Palmer co-wrote a great book. I highly recommend it. It's called Palmer and Weaver. Together, we were 11 foot 9. And it's a really great book with insight into their relationship. One of Palmer's best lines is that Weaver always thought he was a positive person, but he was probably the most negative person I have ever met. First of all, he was only five foot seven, so we never saw eye to eye. And it's a really great book. You got to check it out. Uh, Palmer and Weaver together, we were eleven foot nine. I also uh, there's all kinds of stuff and videos on YouTube. Um, I have my interview with Ken Singleton on YouTube, on Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, and we definitely touch on Earl quite a bit, and I love Earl. I could go on and on about stories of Weaver that I know, but at some point, I gotta roll this puppy up. So, 
with the Weaver story down, I now turn my attention to next week's topic. So let's see. We got Fenway, Wrigley, Dodger Stadium, the Big A, Shy Park, and Crosley Field in our collection, right? Right? Let me see. One, two, three. Yep, that's what we got. Well, next week, we'll be headed to Old Time New York City, across the Harlem River, into Upper Manhattan, Coogan's Bluff, to do a case study on the Polo Grounds, one of the most endearing old-school stadiums of them all. And I can't wait. It's truly one of those stadiums I wish I could have went to. But hey, that's another story for another pod. Here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, drinking the soda pop, watching TV, looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Get some ex- exercise yourself while you're at it, fat fatty. I want to thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the deck.